Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Justin Peters. I hope that this finds you and your family doing well today. I want to thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. So is there a big Calvinistic conspiracy to change the gospel and and distort the original manuscripts to fit this Calvinistic theology, especially as it relates to the birth of Christ and to, to bring reproach upon the name of Christ, but bring reproach upon God and even to bring reproach upon good old Charlie Brown. Well, apparently there is, according to Brian at the YouTube channel Faith on Fire. And I want to show you some of this because I saw it. He posted it a few days ago. I saw it and I'm like, and I just rolled my eyes. And, but and but I began to think about it. I thought, you know, this is a good example of confirmation bias. Um, in other words, beginning, uh, looking at a, a situation and, and reading it, interpreting the situation through your own preconceived um, confirmation bias, your own preconceived uh, beliefs, in this case, theology, and reading it into it and seeing something in this case that, quite frankly, just is not there. But I want to show you this. Now, confirmation bias is something against which all of us need to be careful of because we all, to one degree or another, have our own preconceived theologies. And so we've. this is why part of the discipline of reading and interpreting Scripture um is just that. It is a discipline. We are to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, look at the text, see exactly what it says, and exegete from the text, bring the meaning out of it, rather than reading our own preconceived theology or biases into the text, which would be eisegesis. That's a no-no when it comes to interpreting Scripture. We want to do exegesis, not eisegesis. But this is a good example of eisegesis and confirmation bias. But Brian, and presumably many uh, like him, think that there is a uh, a Calvinistic conspiracy when it comes to Christmas. So I'll show you a few of these clips, and um, this will set it up. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Brian. This is Faith on Fire. And in today's video, I'm going to prove to you, without a shadow of a doubt, going to the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see proof that all the modern Bibles... All the modern translations distort the good news of the message of Jesus Christ and his birth and what the angels proclaimed to the world at his birth. This is our Lord and Savior, the one who came in to redeem the whole world, but that's not what modern Bibles say anymore. They used to, but they've been changed. So a couple weeks ago, I'm listening to otherwise a great sermon. It was wonderful. Not, not a shred of Calvinism in it, and there wouldn't be or I would not be in that church. But <laughs> the fact is... Um, one thing I don't agree with that the church that I go to, it's a conservative Baptist church. I like it a lot. But the fact is, one of the things, I've never vocalized this to the pastor. I'm not a complainer, right? But I, I, you know, I don't like the fact that they quote from the ESV. On the screen pops up this Bible passage I will share with you in a moment. 
and we will look at modern Bible versions of it. We'll look at the King James Bible of it. And in it, I'm, re- I'm reading it, and even though it really was indirectly part of the message, it wasn't the main issue of the, past- of the sermon. The pastor it was a great sermon. And there was many things said in the sermon that is the polar opposite of Calvinism and the doctrine of election. I mean, this is good news to the whole world. But needless to say, when this ESV quote from the Gospel of Luke was put on the screen, I had a, t- I had a double tap. I'm like, what? What? Like, that's not what the Bible says. What is that doing on the screen? And I had to quickly go look at my King James Bible. I'm like, that's, this is what the Bible, that's not what the Bible says. So what is the verse that the pastor of his church put up on the screen that caused Brian such angst and made him believe that there is this Calvinistic cabal out there that is trying to distort the gospel and distort the the meaning of Christmas. Well, it is Luke chapter 2, verse 14. And his pastor apparently put it up in the ESV version, English Standard Version. And in the ESV, it says this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That is what raised his Calvinistic radar, thinking that there's, oh, this is not, that's not what the Bible says. So he hurriedly looked at his King James Version, which says something slightly different. Of course, this is obviously the what the angels said, their announcements to the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flock by night, right? So uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 14 in the King James says this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So, There is a bit of a difference. The English Standard Version says, And on earth peace among those with whom he, God, is pleased. But the King James simply says, And on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Nothing about uh, God's pleasure being directed only towards those men with whom he is pleased. Of course, with whom he is pleased, that is clearly a Calvinistic Bent and in uh, support of his argument, Brian Marshall's none other than Linus from the Charlie Brown Christmas special. I want to show you that clip. Many of you are familiar with this. In fact, um, Kathy and I, my wife Kathy and I, watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special every single year. It's like our little tradition that we've been doing ever since we got married 12 years ago. Kathy and I love the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Um, in fact, just a couple years into our marriage, I got this for Kathy as a Christmas present. This is the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. It's a little hard to see there with the background of the, the refrigerator. It's kind of dark, but you see there's the, on the right, hanging off one of those spindly little branches is the single red ball. And down at the base is the Linus's blue blanket wrapped around the base of the tree there. So uh, I got that for Kathy and she puts it up every single year. This is our Christmas tree, by the way. We don't have a bigger one. This is this is the Peter's Christmas tree. And, uh, and, and it's got a lot of special meaning to it to us and we watch this every single year so without any further delay let's hear from linus as he tells us about the meaning of christmas <laughs> i guess you were right linus i shouldn't have picked this little tree everything i do turns into a disaster i guess i really don't know what christmas is all about isn't there anyone who knows what christmas is all about 
Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Love it, love it, love it. I'm honestly surprised if they even continue to show the Charlie Brown Christmas special on television, but I guess it's such a beloved favorite that they do. So, uh, and I'm glad that they do. So, I mean, Linus gets this right. I mean, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and he stops right there. That's the King James rendering of it. So how dare we add our uh, Calvinistic biases into the text? That is apparently what we are doing. I will let Brian explain. All right, so here we are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And that passage that he read uh, in the Charlie Brown special was verses 8 through 14. We're going to focus on verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Remember that. Goodwill towards men. You will see that no matter how you translate this, you look at the Greek, and there's mentions of different manuscripts saying different things, but we'll take a look at this a little closer. I had to chuckle there because... Brian clearly doesn't know Greek, and uh, yes, we we will take a look at those manuscripts, but I digress. In a moment, but you will see that this is God's message through the angels. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. This is God's goodwill towards men. This is the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ. The prophets had spoken of the Messiah that had been prophesied, has come, and he's born, he's in the world. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, coming to redeem the whole world. This is good news, and it is God's will that it be done, and that's why it's good will. It's God's good will. Or as some versions of others using the same Greek word here, it's his good pleasure. All right? That's the way it's described. You'll, you'll see that. And it's toward men, meaning mankind, towards everyone, not towards some. Someone comes along and claims to be translating the Bible. And then they write this about the birth of Jesus Christ. Let me put this on the screen. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What? So suddenly the Greek word for goodwill or God's good pleasure becomes translated into with whom he is pleased. Give me a break. Let me go back and show you the King James now. All right? Remember this says glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Charlie Brown gets this right. <laughs> it's funny, but it's true. I mean, it's sad, right? The Savior is here. I mean, it doesn't get more better news for the world than to know that if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. And the grace of God is available to us through Jesus Christ. Now, let me, Luke 2.14. If you go look at the modern Bibles, I don't know, I'm just going to pick on the ESV. Look at them all. 
with on whom his favor rests, NIV, NLT, with whom God is pleased, ESV, with whom he is pleased. Um, there's the King James Bible, of course, goodwill toward men. NASB, with whom he is pleased, the uh, NASB 95, with whom he is pleased. I mean, this is unbelievable. Matter of fact, let me, let me switch over to a better view of this. All right, that's a little better, a little cleaner, right? I mean, it just it just goes on and on in these, you know, this this distortion. Brian is just apoplectic that all of these modern Bible translations have this Calvinistic bent to them. He even shows you uh, some of these examples of that from Bible Hub, his website that he's on. For example, NIV, of which, by the way, I'm not a fan. Now, it's a whole other show a whole other episode but i'm not a fan of the niv it's it's a bit too paraphrastic for me but at any rate uh, glory to god in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests uh, esv among those with whom he is pleased new american standard and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased and uh friends this this basic rendering goes on indeed with pretty much every uh, at least reputable uh, modern Bible translation. You can throw in there the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, the the Legacy Standard Bible, much the same way, uh, ASV, RSV, which is Revised Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version, New American Bible, on and on and on. They all have basically the same rendering. Now, if all of these Bible versions, translations, have the same rendering of that phrase in Luke 2.14, and it's different from the King James, then the thoughtful person might be wondering, well, is there something to this? And uh, indeed, there is, and we're about to look at it. But before we do, real quickly, watch this. If you go to find what the word is, you find that this word is, don't ask me to pronounce it, I'm going to totally brutalize this, but it's probably Eudokius? Uh, I don't know. That's the Greek. <laughs> anyway. Eh, not too bad, but the correct pronunciation is not Eudokius, but rather Eudokius. And you see that the emphasis there is rightly placed on the last syllable because of the accent mark that is there over the Yota, that is the ninth letter of the Greek alphabet. Nonetheless, that is the word in play here, the word in question. So how is this to be rightly rendered? And so I want to show you Luke 2.14 in the Greek, and uh, we're going to take a look at this, and we're going to see why the, um, there's not so much of a Calvinistic conspiracy uh, going against the Word of God and good old Charlie Brown as we may have been led to believe. So let's take a look. So let's look at this in the Greek. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. So if we had been one of the translators of the King James Bible and we had in front of us the Greek manuscripts from which they uh, translated and produced the King James Bible, this is what we would have seen. All right, now uh, let's let's look at this. I'll, I think you'll be able to follow me, even though if you don't read Greek, that's fine. You'll be able to follow me. Let's look at this word for word. Luke two, Luke chapter two, verse fourteen says "doxa" in "hupsistois theo." Those first four words there. "Doxa" is the word Greek word for glory. "In" is "in." "Hupsistois" that's the plural form of the singular "upsistas" heaven. So heavens, "upsistois." 
Theo, that's the dative for God to God. So literally, glory in the heavens to God is what that says. Now, let's look at the next phrase, Kai. And you can see that word, right, Kai. And one of the helpful things with Greek is that many of the Greek letters correspond nicely to our letters in the English alphabet. And so it, it helps. And there's a lot of cognates as well. Some of the words are very similar. And... Um, I enjoyed Greek more than I did Hebrew. Uh, my Hebrew is almost gone, but but Greek I try to keep up with. So uh, this says Kai, Hepi, Yes, Irene. Literally it says and on earth that uh, Yes. You see the funny looking Y. That's actually kind of the G, but it's a soft G. And then you see what looks like an it looks like an N to us with that. Um, half moon over it. Well, it's, it's pronounced yes. Irene literally says, and on earth peace. And here we go. Here's the last phrase. In anthropois udakia. So there's the, there's the, the crucial phrase there. And on earth peace to men, anthropois, that's, that's the plural for for man, men, udokia, goodwill. So that's where we, that's the phrase there. That's that's the crucial phrase. This is what the King James translators would have seen. Now, I want to show you for comparison, uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, from the Greek manuscripts from which are derived the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, RSV, all these other translations, Holman, Christian Standard, all of them. The exact same phrase, uh, the exact same word, exact same verse, in everything exactly the same, except you might notice right there the very last word, the word in question here, udakias, you see that that has a sigma. That's the uh, Greek letter that corresponds to our S in the English alphabet. So the difference is all of this hinges on that one little letter. It is missing in the King James, Udokia. However, in every other modern English translation, we see Udokias, or at least in the in the Greek manuscripts, we see Udokias, and it all hinges on that. So what's going on? Why does just one little letter make such a big difference? So it turns out that the addition of that one single letter, that sigma, does make a big difference because it changes the form of that word into the genitive form. Now, I know that that just warms your heart and blesses your soul. But what that means is the genitive form indicates that instead of rendering that word simply as goodwill, the sense is is that it is of goodwill or possessing goodwill. And of course, the context, the goodwill comes from and originates with God that he gives to other people, in this case, the men. So the sense is, in the right sense of the Greek, is that these are men upon whom God's favor rests or among men with whom he is pleased. In fact, uh, I want to show this to you. This is a resource that will be helpful uh, to many of you, if you don't have it, which I guess probably most of you don't, but if if you have just a little bit of knowledge of Greek, uh, or even even if you don't, this is still a good resource. The New Linguistic and Exegetical Key 
to the Greek New Testament there. And uh, so I, obviously this is my copy. And so I pulled it off the shelf and opened it up to Luke chapter 2, verse 14. goes through every single verse in the New Testament. And I took a screenshot of it here, or rather a photo with my iPhone. Then I imported it in PowerPoint and highlighted it here. So um, that's how we make the sausage here in my office. <laughs> so Luke chapter 2, verse 14, there's the word, Udochias good pleasure. It refers to God's good pleasure, those upon whom God's favor rests. That's why every single modern English translation, reputable English translation, has this phrasing, among men with whom he is pleased. That is the sense of the Greek, and that's why you see it in all of these modern English translations. So there is no Calvinistic conspiracy here at all. It's simply the best reading of the Greek. So now you may be, may be wondering, well, which Greek is correct? Is it the Greek of the King James Version that does not have the genitive form? Or is it the Greek used by all of the other modern English translations that does have that added letter, that sigma? So uh, which is to be trusted now? That gets into a whole other discussion. Uh, entire books have been written about you know, which uh, set of manuscripts is to be preferred, those used by the King James or those that are used by more modern English translations. There's a whole lot. I mean, we could do programs on that. I know where I stand on that and where most people stand on that. Um, so instead of doing a deep dive, let me give you just kind of a, a cursory uh, understanding of this, and I will defer for just a moment to my esteemed colleague, Inigo Montoya. Who are you? Are we enemies? Why am I on this wall? Where's Buttercup? Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. So, let me sum up. Without getting overly technical here, the King James Bible is based upon what is referred to as the Textus Receptus. That is the Latin word for received text, which is uh, technically it's a series of 16th century printed texts that were based upon uh, mostly late dated Greek manuscripts. And the wording here in Luke 2.14, uh, reflected by the King James, reflects that of the Textus Receptus and reflects that of some later manuscripts. 6th century, 8th century, 9th century manuscripts, and most all of the medieval manuscripts. Now, these are, these are later dated. However, in, con in contrast to the manuscripts upon which the New American Standard and uh, Legacy Standard and most of the modern English translations are based upon, these are based upon earlier manuscripts. These go back to the 4th and 5th century B.C. So they're older and therefore closer to the events that are described and recorded by these manuscripts. And when you think about it logically, it makes sense that the older the manuscript, generally speaking, uh, the more preferred that it is. Because the older it is, the closer it is to the events that it describes, and there is less time for scribal errors and, you know, drop words, drop letters, transposed words or letters, that kind of thing, those kind of scribal errors 
to work their way into the text and then be copied and copied and copied again. So um, that's an oversimplified, oversimplified understanding of that, but that is the nuts and bolts of it. So um, this is not some Calvinistic conspiracy. It's simply that after the King James was written, we discovered these older and therefore more reliable manuscripts. Now, the manuscripts are almost completely identical, but the older, the better. The older, the fewer mistakes, fewer, uh, less opportunity there is for mistakes to enter in. And so, generally speaking, the older manuscripts are to be referred, and that's why the modern English translations, the reputable ones, um, use that family of manuscripts. So, dear friends, no conspiracy here, no Calvinistic conspiracy at all. That's just a fallacious argument. Now, one other question that we could ask. Where else in the New Testament do we see uh, this construction of words, these, these two words put together? Well, the short answer is that there is actually nowhere else in the New Testament where you see these two words conjoined side by side, anthropoise and eudakias. It's the only place that you see these two words put together. However, there is some help that we can get from what is called the Septuagint, or the Septuagint, depending upon how you like to uh, pronounce that. The, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Septuagint gets its name from the Latin word for 70, because the tradition is, is that it was translated by 70 scholars. And so you'll see the abbreviation of the Septuagint as LXX, Roman numerals L, 50, XX, 10, you know, double 10 there, so 50 and 10 and 10 is 70. So that's that's the meaning behind LXX. So let us look at Psalm chapter 5, verse 13 in the Septuagint. It says this, And they shall boast in you those who love your name, because you bless the righteous one, O Lord. You have crowned him with a shield of favor. Same word here. You see it highlighted in blue. Same word, Udakias. And it is the one upon whom God has given his favor, crowned him with a shield of favor. It is the one who is righteous in Psalm 513 that God gives to him crown of favor. So it's the same, it's the same thought in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. God's favor is given to those men with whom he is pleased. That is the sense of the Greek. Yet listen to this from Brian. And I'm going to show you that, no, there's a choice here. And these, these interpreters, not translators, interpreters, decided to go with something that was Calvinistic rather than what manuscripts said. Friends, that is just factually not true. He says the man who produced these modern translations were just interpreters and not translators. That That is objectively not true. Brian shows his complete ignorance in making a statement like that. It's just, if, if it weren't so sad, it would be comical. Uh, listen to this that Brian said. This really caught my ear. Listen carefully to this. But out of the mainstream Bibles that most churches use today, you got King James Bible, you got the NIV, which is probably the most widely used, if I'm not mistaken about that. I believe it's the number one selling Bible still, the NIV, even though 
others have become very popular, like the ESV, in in recent years. But you know, you look at NASB, the NLT, ESV. I mean, and there's a whole bunch. But th- these are like more of your mainstream modern Bibles that people will proudly hold and read and say, "This is the inerrant Word of God." It's the inerrant Word of God. Provided you've invited the Holy Spirit in to teach you in wisdom and truth. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let, let's hear that again. It's the inerrant word of God. Provided you've invited the Holy Spirit in to teach you in wisdom and truth. Friends, the word of God is the word of God, regardless of whether or not you invited the Holy Spirit in to teach you. That is a, that is a, I mean, I had to do a double take on that. The word of God is God's word period, regardless of what you and I do with it. Now, I'll let Brian finish his thought. Because if someone translates something wrong that changes the message of Jesus Christ, that's not the inerrant word of God at all. That is a false translation. It's an inaccurate interpretation. And it changes the word of God. But nothing of the sort has happened. This is what the text says it is the meaning of the text the problem is is that brian just doesn't like it a lot of people don't like it obviously that the bible says that but it says what it says so friends uh some folks need to just take their paranoid calvinistic tinfoil hats off and let the bible speak for itself but as long as i have access to a king james bible i'm going with that Because I do see a very strong Calvinistic distortion or an interpretation to uphold Calvinistic doctrines that diminish who Jesus is and who he came to save. So, who exactly did Jesus come to save? That's a very good point, very good question. So, let's let Jesus himself answer that very question. Who did he come to save? Well, let's go to John chapter 6, 37 through 39. Jesus speaking. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives to Christ will come to Christ. Not some of those that the Father gives to Christ will come. Not most, but all. All that the Father gives to Christ, not may come to him, not might come to him, not will come to him if they're smart enough to make that decision, All that the Father gives to Christ will come to Christ. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Of all that the Father has given to Christ, all of those people, all of his elect, he will lose not one of them. He will raise every single one of those people up on the last day. Dear friends, there is just no amount of hermeneutical gymnastics you can go through, no amount of hermeneutical hoops you can jump through to get away from the very clear teaching in the scriptures, that God has his elect. Now, uh, some erroneously believe that if you are a Calvinist or you hold to the to the doctrines of grace, a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation, then, then that means that you don't believe in man's responsibility. 
That's not true. That would only be true of hyper-Calvinists. And quite honestly, hyper-Calvinists are about as rare as Bigfoot. I mean, I, I have traveled all over the world and I have met very few, maybe a handful, maybe two or three people that uh, are true hyper-Calvinists. Um, I, to use the term, uh, I don't go around calling myself a Calvinist because it's such a loaded term and people don't really even understand what that means. And Brian himself does not understand what it means. But it's a, kind of a, a, a term that is widely used by a lot of folks. Do I believe in a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation? Absolutely. Do I believe that God has his elect? Yes, absolutely I do. Do I also believe that man is responsible and accountable to come to Christ? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And any any true Calvinist would affirm that. We believe that God is sovereign in salvation, that he has his elect, his people that he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, per Ephesians chapter 1, and he has given these people as a gift from the Father to the Son. When did that happen? From before the foundation of the world, John chapter 6, read John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. We affirm all of these things. And we also believe that man is responsible, that he is accountable before God. Both of these truths are taught in Scripture. Let me teach you a little term. It's called an antinomy. An antinomy. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y. An antinomy. An antinomy... That is a word used to refer to or to denote two seemingly mutually exclusive truths, two truths that seem to our finite minds to be mutually exclusive, that they cannot cannot possibly both be true at the same time. And yet, Scripture teaches them to be true. And there's a number of antinomies in the Bible. For example, who wrote the book of Romans? Did Paul write the book of Romans? Or did God write the book of Romans? Yes, yes. Paul wrote the book of Romans, and the book of Romans is also written and inspired by God. So uh, there's an antinomy. The Trinity, the triune nature of God, is an antinomy. Is God one God? Yes. Is he one in three? Yes. Yes, both of those are true. Now, they seem to be mutually exclusive, our finite minds cannot comprehend that, that God is one God, and yet he exists in three co-equal persons, each of whom is also God himself. Our finite minds can't wrap around that. Uh, do I believe it? Absolutely I believe it, because the word of God teaches it. Who crucified Christ? Here's yet another antinomy. In fact, let me read to you from Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. So, who crucified Christ? Was, or why was Christ crucified? Was he crucified because he was 
because this was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God? Yes. Was he crucified at the hands of godless men who put him to death? Yes. Both of these things are true. And we see this in the doctrine of salvation in Scripture as well. Old and New Testament, by the way. But let me point to you this text. Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through 28. We see both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Look at this. Jesus speaking. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Now, there's God's sovereignty. There's election right there. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And yet look at the very next verse almost in the, in the exact same breath even. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's the responsibility and accountability of man. So, who knows the Son? Who knows the Father? The, only those to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And yet, the invitation goes out to all. Jesus says, Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility, the accountability of man. Both are true. Both are taught in Scripture. And anyone who is honest to the text will teach both, as do I and any honest Calvinist, to use that term, does as well. So, in conclusion, who did Jesus save? Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 1. This is the angel speaking to Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save whom? His people from their sins. You see, dear friends, Jesus came to seek and to save, not just to make salvation possible. He came to actually save. He will save his people from their sin. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Merry Christmas to you and yours, dear ones. Until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit with you all. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or interested in more teaching resources, or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.